Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. I haven't said this in a while, uh, it's probably not been a long time, but when I say open your Bibles, I assume you would come with Bibles. And if not, just download the app. Because you didn't come to hear me this morning. If you did, you came for the wrong reason. We have an open Bible so that we can hear from God. We want to hear His Word and allow His Word to seep into our hearts and souls so that we can be transformed because it is through the Word of God that our lives are changed. And so I encourage you to open your Word, open your Bibles with eager hearts today. So as we do that, I don't know about you, but I am dependent upon another for His help and aid as we consider his word. So let's turn to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you that you care for us, unworthy as we are. God, you created us and we rebelled against you, and yet you love us and you pursued us so much in such a way that you sent your only son to, to be our redeemer, our savior. Father, you've not left us in this world without witness to yourself. And God, you've given us a word, a revelation that we find in the pages of Holy Scripture. And it's to that word and that revelation that we turn our hearts and minds to now so that we can understand you more and understand your care for us and your desire for us. So God, would you open our hearts and minds now? Would you give us the ability to receive the food of your word so that our souls and lives would be nourished in such a way that we would be changed. So Lord, help us now as we, as we turn our attention to the text that's before us. Would you instruct us? Would you change us for our good? But Lord, most importantly, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. When you think about rejection, rejection is a terrible thing to experience. Whether it's a child being the last one selected to a team in a friendly competition, or an adult being passed over for that next promotion, maybe it was a date proposal gone bad, or a friendship that has been tossed aside. Sometimes rejection comes in forms such as being told you don't have the grades for this specific program. Or maybe being criticized for your appearance. Then there are the sad and endless examples that, that haunt us on a larger scale. Examples look, such as racial rejection or that rejected child in a mother's womb simply for the purpose of convenience. Rejection is a terrible thing. Rejection comes in many different forms and impacts every single one of us. At some level or another, we all know what it's like to be rejected. Or maybe you even know what it's like 
to reject. Either way, we live in a world filled with rejection. But it's in those moments of rejection that we should be reminded that Jesus has also experienced rejection. He knows perfectly what it's like to be rejected. He experienced rejection at its ugliest and at its worst. Isaiah prophesied this in his 53rd chapter where he says in verse 3 of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. And it's that prophecy that we see unfolded before us this morning in Matthew chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, we have the accounts of the rejection that Jesus endured. For you, for me. So in those moments where you are suffering rejection, where you feel as if you have been neglected or, or, or opposed, remember there's one. There's one who knows the full weight of rejection and he experienced it for your sake. The events leading up to Jesus' trial has showed an ever-increasing resistance to him. But now in Matthew 26, Matthew 27, we, we begin to see really the climax of the people's rejection of the Messiah. Ultimately resulting in his crucifixion. So, The passage we have before us, Matthew 27, we'll be looking at the first 26 verses. Really, it draws us into those early morning events. And it's in those early morning events that Jesus endured this this trial, a, a church trial, if you will, and now a civil trial where he is being, being rejected. It's not a pretty scene. But it will be these very events in these verses that reveals the absolute determination and commitment that God has for you and for me. I think the purpose of this text would be to not just instruct us, but to warn us. It's a a grace given to us to to walk us through the the beautiful portrait of God's grace found in the the shame and the guilt that Jesus endured for you and for me. We should guard our hearts by the grace of God and by the Holy Spirit given to us so that we do not fall into these often subtle traps of rejection. Because even when I mention rejection, while it has the same end, it does come in various forms. And it's those forms that I believe that we see 
magnified and, and exemplified for us here in this text. And I want to walk through those forms of rejection with you. So that, yes, you can be instructed as to what rejection looks like, but even to be, to be warned that we do not fall into the traps of rejection. And you say, well, pastor, I'm a Christian. I've not rejected Christ. Well, Peter would have said the same thing. Judas would have said the same thing. The vast majority of the people in this text is not the world. The vast majority of the people in this text that are struggling through their various forms of rejection are what would be called, I use it in quotes, the people of God. So that's why I say, let this be a warning. Let this inform your own heart that you do not fall into this trap of rejecting Christ. I want us to consider four types of rejection that Jesus encountered during his trial. And as we consider these, may our prayer be that the Lord would expose any, any tendencies of rejection in our hearts so that we would confess those and repent from those by his grace. Look at these together. The first example of rejection that we have is what I would call a religiously motivated rejection. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, obviously, the, the chief priest and the elders and the scribes, this is not their first first go-around with Jesus. They, they had been walking him to this point. They had arrested him, and they had held their own trial, so to speak, accusing him of blasphemy. And knowing that they did not have the authority to legally put someone to death, they had to appeal to a higher court. And so they take him to Pilate, the governor. Just think about their rejection of Christ, their, their jealousy and their hatred that they had for him is significant. And as I just mentioned, the, the irony in all of this, all of this hatred and all of this jealousy that the chief priests and the elders had toward Jesus is religiously motivated. Friends, this is not the president of Atheist United. This is not council members for the council of human secularism. These are chief priests. These are religious leaders who have led in the temple. They performed sacrifices. They were the so-called experts in the law who were to shepherd Israel. You know, we expect hostility from the world, but but these were church leaders, so to speak. And their problem was that they saw Jesus as a threat. A threat to their power, a threat to their system, a threat to their own sin that they would like to hide and cover up. He was a threat. Think about it. It was Passover. And they are more concerned with putting Jesus to death than they were commemorating God's miraculous deliverance of his people in the Exodus. 
Here's a hard truth that we learn from this. Jesus is a threat to any worldly system, but listen, he is also a threat to any man-made religion or man-made attempts to please God. At the end of the day, the chief priests and the elders wanted to believe in and serve God on their own terms, in their own way, by their own methods. And you say, well, that's problematic. That's an understatement. But listen, it led them to crucify him. That's how committed they were to their own system, to their own exaltation. They had a religiously motivated hatred for Christ because Jesus stood opposed to anything that they had developed on their own. And they were losing significance and prestige and importance and power. Man-made religion will always stand in rejection to Christ. Yes, their rejection led them to kill Jesus. All forms of religiously motivated rejection might not go that far, but friend, it's just as troubling. This is where it ends. It comes in so many different forms. That inward desire you have to want to earn your way to heaven stands in complete opposition to Christ. It is a rejection of the gospel. If I can just do enough good, if I can just attend church, maybe 27 Sundays, it's more than half. Maybe if I can just do enough good in the world. It may not seem like crucifying the Savior, but it's, it's on that path. You're rejecting Christ when you begin to take your salvation in your own hands. And that's what these chief priests were about. They were about doing that and protecting that and preserving that so that they would be the ones held in honor. We have so many so-called churches today rejecting Jesus on the basis of their own opinion, which becomes authority. And not upon the absolute truths of the Word of God. No longer... In their mind, are we called to submit to Christ, but rather he is supposed to submit to their redefined version of Christianity. There are religiously motivated forms of rejection all over the place, but, but it can be right here. This is what we see in the chief priests taken to the most extreme. But there's a second form of rejection. It's a rejection that I would call a selfishly inspired rejection. We see that in verses 3 through 10 in Judas. We continue the the narrative of Judas here. Let me pick up in verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. 
chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what the prophet, what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them, they gave for the, the potter's field, as the Lord directed. Back in chapter 26, during the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, Jesus predicted that one of them would betray him, and that was Judas. And that's exactly what happened in verses 47 through 56. We looked at that account a few weeks back. He betrayed Jesus. He was greedy. He was motivated in his betrayal by by a very selfish, greedy heart. And now, in this scene, Judas enters again. Once that we're told, once that Judas saw Jesus was condemned, he, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver, saying, I sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now, there are a few things to note here. He changed his mind. It does not mean he repented. Unfortunately, the King James and other translations use the word repent, but that's not the word that we need to understand. What, what it means is that he had a regret. Not the same thing exactly as repentance. He had a deep regret and desire for something to be undone. That's what that word means. What we have here, when you consider the structure that this gospel uses for this account, is a clear contrast between Peter and Judas, two disciples, both betraying their Savior. Both for completely different motives, resulting in completely different in a completely different end. Peter's story was one of temporary failure under stress that results in his tears of repentance and his eventual restoration. But Judas, in contrast, had taken a clear decision against Jesus and his remorse, when realized his mistake, did not lead to true repentance but to despair and suicide. Reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, I think it's played out quite clearly here in this text. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I think you see that in the example of Judas and Peter. Even here it seems that Judas is simply trying to abdicate himself by returning the money, much like Pilate does later by washing his hands. Some have made an argument that there was true repentance here and I guess we will find out in heaven. I think it's clear that that there was certainly a, a desire on behalf of Judas to seek his own selfish gain. He certainly may have felt there's a lot of sinners that feel bad about things they've done. But feeling bad and remorseful is quite different than true repentance. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican, can put it this way it is, it is possible for a man to feel his sins and be sorry for them, to be under strong convictions of guilt and express deep remorse, to be pricked in conscience and exhibit much distress of mind, and yet, for all this, not repent with his heart. 
Judas sought his own prosperity. And now as he watched the trial of Jesus move with rapid speed, all Judas could do is, is feel the weight of what he's done and end his life in despair. A side note, I, I, when you think about the issue of, of suicide, this sermon's not about that, but, but just a side note, it, it, a lot of people think that that's the unpardonable sin and that that automatically guarantees a, a sentence to hell. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. That is a doctrine that emerged somewhere in the past that is not clearly taught in the Scriptures. But, whatever the case with Judas, let him stand as a clear warning to you and to me. Let him be that beacon of light in, in the darkness when the, the boats are up on the water saying, there, there are rocks here, don't come here. Let Judas be that for you. Don't go there. Remember, this man walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He watched him perform miracles. He participated in the mission and in a moment of selfish greed, he betrayed his Savior. Friends, let him serve as that beacon so that we don't make a shipwreck of our faith on the rocks of greed and worldliness and in the end regret it when it's too late. Selfishly inspired rejection. Number three, we have an immorally manipulated rejection. Look at verses 15 through 23. We'll come back and get verses 11 and 14 through 14 in a moment. Verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd, this is Pilate, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that he had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, all, they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The crowd has played a significant role throughout the gospel account. In fact, all four gospels really highlight the, the presence of the crowds throughout the ministry of Jesus. From some of the other gospel accounts, we, we even here get, in this context, at least initially, get the impression that the crowd was not originally with the religious leaders, but that quickly changes. Listen, think about the crowd. The crowd, prior to this, had been favorably impressed by Jesus. Chapter 21, verse 15 it was the crowd singing, Hosanna, the son of David, as Jesus made his way in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In that same chapter, verse 46 of chapter 21, it says, And although the chief priests, they, the chief priests and Pharisees, were seeking to arrest him, they, the chief priests and Pharisees, feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. 
In chapter 22, verse 33, when Jesus was addressing the Sadducees about the resurrection, it says, And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. The crowd had rejoiced at Jesus' arrival in the triumphal entry. They had held him to be a prophet. They were astonished at his teaching. And now they were demanding his death. Why the change? Mark's account says that the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Our account here in Matthew says that the chief priests persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas. It's interesting, Barabbas was a notorious criminal. His name, name meant son of the father. So it's ironic that the crowds desire the release of Barabbas, son of the father, instead of Jesus, the son of the father. What we see here is, by the way, there are many answers to why they changed, but one of these answers is, is they were manipulated, they were persuaded, they were convinced by the chief priests and the Pharisees. It, it shows how, how easily swayed the crowd was in his indictment. And it's a clear reminder of just how easy it can be to be led astray when you are not basing your truth, your beliefs, your understanding upon a foundation of true doctrine. One moment you can be the biggest fan of Jesus and all is going well, and in the next moment you can be turning your back upon him and rejecting him. Just by some simple convincing words. what happens when we were removed from divine authority. When you are not governed by the truth, you will take anyone's word that sounds convincing. This is why 70% of teenagers that graduate high school from Christian families go to college and turn their back on the faith. I said 70%, and that may be low. 70% of our children go to college hear that philosophy professor, that science professor, just hear that it's a smart person, they have a PhD, they must know what they're talking about, and they fall hook, line, and sinker. What little faith they had is all but destroyed. There's another sermon for another day, but friends, it just reminds you that, that VeggieTales theology doesn't fare, fare too well with the intellectual elite. You don't have to be a college student, though, to find the pressure and persuasion. It can be found around the break table at work when people are challenging your stance on a particular public issue. And there you find yourself, the lone Christian surrounded by six, seven, eight others who are viciously opposed. And the pressure begins to mount. Their arguments seem so, so good. Maybe it's family pressure. Maybe it's not, not family that are unbelievers. Maybe it's family that claim to be Christians, but they're, they're saying to you, 
Don't be so narrow-minded and intolerant. Those Thanksgiving dinners and Christmas dinners and other dinners become places of dialogue where you slowly and subtly begin to waver in your faith because they're your family. Other emotional appeals to experience, questioning your intelligence. Friends, we could go on and on. The crowds were persuaded in a moment. Now, I didn't say earlier that they had submitted their lives to Jesus as Savior and Lord. They were just impressed by him. They, they, they held him to be a prophet. They, they, could this be the Messiah? They were being drawn in. And then the chief priests and the elders stood in their, in their way, and here they are crying for his crucifixion. Friend, if you are not in the word of God and actively pursuing the truth, your faith and your commitment will be challenged. If your faith and your commitment to Christ is not challenged, you're not living the Christian life. If you can go throughout a week and not once be challenged in your faith, it's all of you, some of you will have more op opportunities for that than others. But if you can go in a regular basis and not be questioned and not be challenged and not be pressured, I'm not sure that, that the gospel is taking root in your life. You will be challenged. Teenagers, you're going to be challenged when you, when you get out into the real world. It may not be college. If you go to a Christian school, so even some of our Christian schools will challenge your faith. But you're going to be challenged. You better have an answer. And we have it. They were persuaded, and therefore they rejected. But then last, we have what's called an indifferently calloused rejection. Come back to Pilate for a moment. Look at verses 11 through 14. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? They gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now jump down to verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You know, at the beginning of this chapter, we're told that Jesus is brought to Pilate, the governor, and, and so the trial now reaches the, the civil court. And sometimes on a quick read of this account, we might conclude that, that Pilate was neutral and in some ways trying to help Jesus. In fact, if you read Luke's account, and John's account, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. You've lost your mind. Mark's account shows us at least three times where he tries to release Jesus. He's dumbfounded by the, crowd's, the, by the crowd's insistent demand to crucify Jesus. He doesn't get it. But it's equally true that Pilate was ignorant 
just as ignorant of the theological issues at stake. And so Pilate tried to play it safe, like so many of us. On one hand, he didn't want to punish an innocent man, and on the other hand, he wanted peace. And so he attempts to be indifferent to the situation. But the problem he doesn't understand is that no one can truly be neutral when it comes to Christ. No decision about Jesus is a decision about Jesus. You either embrace him for who he is or you don't. A hostile rejection exemplified in the chief priests. And indifference, both are still rejection at the end of the day. So many people like Pilate today. They prefer Jesus. They prefer Jesus over the envious, malicious high priest of the world. They see no harm in Jesus. In fact, they see him as a good example to follow. But they see no reason whatsoever to risk their lives for him. Pilate's true character is revealed in verse 24. It says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. In Mark's account, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. What a lesson that is, friends. That you and I can never serve Christ while trying to satisfy the world around us. Impossible. Moral indifference is still opposition and rejection. You may say, well, I don't reject Jesus. I think he's a great guy. I think he did a lot of good things. Pretty important historical figure. Maybe even a great prophet. I don't buy the thing that he's the son of God. I don't buy that, 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 that thing you all claim that, that he's the savior of sinners, but he was a good guy. You try to play it safe. still rejection, friend. If you have not bowed to him as Savior and Lord of your life, you are opposed to him. There's no fence riding. There's no middle ground. You're either with him or you're not. You are either for him or you are against him. When it came right down to it, chief priests, the crowds, Judas, and Pilate were all in the same boat. They stood in direct opposition to Jesus. The last verse of our text today says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. The irony is that the very one who is innocent is the one who was punished 
and crucified. But friends, is that not the very purpose of the gospel? If anything, this text displays is just how evil and wicked mankind can be. But how gracious and good God is. Two, towards the very evil people that we are. What we have here is what's known as the great exchange. The innocent son of God going to lay down his life so that guilty sinners can be set free. His rejection was for your acceptance. Friend, you must place your trust and hope in him for that to be. Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If you deny him, be it hostile or indifferent, if you deny him, he will deny you. Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Friend, let that be a reminder that he was despised and rejected by men so that men could be loved and accepted by God. That is grace. That is grace at its finest. That is grace at its loveliest. And that is what God has done for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this grace that you've extended to us so beautifully in Christ. God, how loving you are that you are willing to send your own Son to endure these things for our sake. Lord, we know that our Savior was rejected. He was despised. He was rejected to the point of being crucified on a cross. But Lord, it's at that moment of His rejection that He endured the judgment, the wrath that we all deserve. His rejection was for our acceptance. And Lord, my prayer is that if there are people here today that don't know the the life-transforming reality of being accepted by you, adopted into your family, embraced, having their sins forgiven, Lord, I pray that you would stir their hearts, even now, Lord, to long for that, knowing that they can be accepted right now. They would cry out in faith to you placing their full trust and hope in Christ, who though rejected, was rejected for their sin so that they could be accepted by you. God, would you move in their lives and would you help them to see that that's their only hope? That's their only hope. Father, even for believers 
These truths are glorious reminders of what we have been able to receive. Father, it was us that deserved to be rejected by you because of our sin. But you endured rejection so that our sin could be justly dealt with so that we could be adopted in your family. God, if that is not motive enough to live and motive enough to, to rejoice and to walk this Walk in this life in ways that are pleasing to you and for the good of others, I don't know what is. So God, would you help this to be a stirring motivation in our souls today to live to the glory of your name. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so that he could bring many sons and daughters to glory. Lord, we thank you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.